Hello, I'm Sam. I run the Never Seen Trek Star Trek account on Twitter, going through all of Star Trek and uh, reviewing slash live tweeting about every episode as I see it. Hello, I'm Patrick. I'm uh, at Ingears42 on Twitter.com, and I'm a big fan of the Never Seen Trek Twitter account, and uh, so because of all my babbling, I was invited for some reason to uh, take part today. Hello, I'm Captain Pikachu. You might notice me on Twitter yelling about many things, especially OSHA. Safety. (laughs) And this is the first episode of what will hopefully be the the long-running Never Seen Trek podcast. We are going... Hey! So we're already off the rails. Now, um, we're today we're going to be going through the just a quick look at the first two series of the original series, just to catch us up to where we are in the uh, Never Seen Trek Twitter account project sort of thing, and then taking a closer look at the first six episodes of season three. So that's Spock's brain through to uh, Spectre of the Gun. Just talking about the plots, bit of trivia, talking about how whether we like the episodes or not, and just having having a general chat. So we'll start off with obviously with series one. Uh, do either either of you have a particular favorite from series one? Uh, man, it's hard to say because series one is very much uh, a season of classics. I think. Um, I mean, I I've I always loved the pilots, both pilots actually, because I had them on a cassette tape growing up. Uh, the Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before. Um, because I think they really elegantly set up two themes that remain constant in the series and the franchise to this day. You know, the cage is, uh, the theme is, no matter how nice captivity is, human nature will not abide it, uh, that we need freedom. And then where no man has gone before, uh, very unsubtly, is saying that with that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and I feel like those are both major manifestos of where the series goes. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> I'll let someone else talk. talk. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I definitely agree um, with regards to those being very much core tenets of where the franchise went going forwards. If you had to pick between those two episodes, which which would you say was your favorite? Because I'm quite interested to see what people think about this. Who? Um, <laughs> I between the cage and where no man has gone before, um, I choose City on the Edge of Forever. <laughs> that's, that's very fair. That is cheating. <laughs> That, that does lead us quite nicely onto City on the Edge of Forever, though, because that would have been my answer for favourite episode of Series 1. Oh, I'm sorry, what, sorry, was, what your was your favourite? Uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think it's I interesting think it's... because I'm, I'm looking at the list of episodes, and Season 1 really is almost almost two seasons. It's The first half is like Gene Roddenberry's baby, and the second half is Gene Coons. And like... Roddenberry didn't go anywhere, but Gene Kuhn kind of emerged as that major creative force, and we got the Klingons and Starfleet Command, um, and some of the sort of standard plots of the series uh, came out of that era. 
And I thought it was particularly interesting to mention because of the season three episodes that we're going to uh, look at a little later, two of them were written by Kuhn under a pseudonym. And those were the very last uh, screenplays he, he created for the show from Whole Cloth. Yeah, absolutely. I, that was something I was going to come on to as well. Obviously, <laughs> I've mentioned uh, before we started to you two, obviously I'll mention for the sake of the audience now that I have compiled a little sort of fact sheet based on the six episodes we're looking at today. And one of the things that I did pick up on was, as you said, uh, Gene Alcoon using the pseudonym, which I had written down, like, oh, Lee Cronin. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because he was... I, I, I saw a lot of people while I was researching this, saying that they thought it was because uh, he wasn't happy with the scripts. From what I could tell, that's not the case. It was the fact that he was under contract with Universal when he wrote those episodes, so he wasn't technically allowed to be writing for Paramount. Yeah, there's so much fan mythology that sometimes you really have to cut through it. Um, and uh, I, I'm afraid that my brain has a disease and I basically am a fact sheet when it comes to this franchise. So I'm going to try and... Uh, I, feel, I feel like that's, that's the role I kind of play on our, our Twitter exchanges. So uh, I'm, I'm, at your, I'm at your service here. It, it is definitely much appreciated. Uh, Pikachu, what about you? What would you say was your favorite from Series 1? Well, I, I think if anyone knows me, uh, my favorite would be quite obvious. <laughs> I'm gonna t- I'm gonna take a punt at the cage. Well, yes, the cage technically, but mostly the menagerie. And the menagerie, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's... I think that enhances the cage a little bit. Like yeah. they're both good, but you can get away with only watching yeah, menagerie. Yeah, you, you could totally because it's just like it's a nice little two-parter, and it takes in the stuff from the cage really well by like cutting down some of the things and leaving out some of the slightly more questionable parts (laughs) women on the bridge (laughs) yeah that comment was always very funny to me because Mm. he says this like five seconds after like standing behind another female officer who's on the bridge so i'm like you have two (laughs) yeah, <laughs> like you clearly have many women on the bridge, so I'm not sure where this joke is coming from. You seem very confused, and we we have a math problem here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and what Menagerie also adds to the equation, I think, is one this fascinating sense of history to Spock and the ship that they've been having adventures for years and years and years, which now is getting its own modern <laughs> spinoff. Um, yeah. But but two it really i think brought into focus this idea that became central to the series and the movies that you know like spock is ride or die for for pike and obviously as well for kirk and then kirk reciprocates that relationship with spock so you almost get a sense of you know pike and spock sort of wrap up their relationship in that episode but then it foreshadows the continuing bond between kirk and spock that becomes so central yeah, I mean, it's really one of my favorite things to, like, I remember watching it the first time as a kid, and I remember I, I just, like, it zeroed in on me, on, like, just this whole story and this whole history, and there was all this thing, all those things that happened beforehand, and Pike was just such a great and interesting character that... I, you know, he just became my favorite instantly, and mm. I'm one of those people whose favorite characters are always the guest characters <laughs> or the background character number 48, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's important as well to note with uh, with the Menagerie 
as someone, as obviously myself, who'd not seen any Star Trek prior to this project, apart from a few episodes of Enterprise, but we don't count that, um, <laughs> uh, it went a long way to sort of developing Spock's character as, yes, he has this part of him that's Vulcan that doesn't do emotions, that is very reserved and very logical, but then there is still this emotional connection that he forms with the people he serves with. He basically risked everything. I think he he risked his own life, he risked Kirk's mm. life, the entire crew, the ship. He just basically went, eh, well, everybody's going to go out the window. I'm going to go save my uh, other oh, captain. But it, it went a long way to sort of, of, of developing him as more than just this very logical, very straight and on the narrow character yeah. and developing into more of someone who has emotions but tries to hide them. Yeah, definitely. I remember because, like, uh, I was very surprised as a kid because, like, Spock was kind of always a certain way and then suddenly you see him in this episode just kind of going like completely off the rails and just like running off doing all these things that you don't normally think Spock would do so you're just like oh my god what is he doing? <laughs> I don't I don't think you get a muck time without the menagerie. Yeah no definitely not yeah. <laughs> I also think my other favorite episode was The Conscience of the King which came right after. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see that one talked about very much. With obviously, yeah, my yeah. Ex my exposure is mainly through people talking on Twitter. Um, I don't see that one mentioned a lot, but I do enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's really like it's one of my favorite stories because I, I think it, it explores this idea of like, you know, like when when you are a person who is you know your name Kodos the executioner, you're being accused of all this like you know horrible things, but then it's then it's also slightly more complicated than that, and you're also not like the evil, horrible murderer thing that maybe history kind of made you out to be. It's this very like delicate balance that the show manages to walk about like what what it is your place is in history is kind of also determined by like how people perceive you and not necessarily sometimes what you do and it's also just really interesting now um having the new shows and the new stories that we've got um one of the novels drastic measures ties back right into the story of the conscience of the king which i thought really brilliantly ties kirk a young james kirk a younger philippa Giorgio, and a younger gabriel lorca into Ooh. that story which is really exciting and That's really cool. spicy yeah <laughs> as far as far as influence on the franchise i do know that it, it's ronald d moore's favorite episode and kind of the trek defining episode for him and if you don't recognize the name he started his career on next generation had a massive impact on that show and then went on to have an even more massive impact on deep space nine and now he's a huge writer producer in hollywood Battlestar so, Galactica. Yeah, but yeah, he's the he's Battlestar Galactica. He's the new Battlestar Galactica that came from him. So that's so that's a that's another another instance of that episode continuing, which is always funny to me because it it almost struck me aside from like the voice print thing, it's almost not a science fiction story. Yeah, but, no, it's it's very different. But that's not a bad thing, and I think that's exactly what yeah. Moore was responding to. Absolutely. No, I, th I think without that voice print bit, there's no reason that plot couldn't have taken place on Earth. 
and had absolutely nothing to do with with space travel whatsoever. <laughs> which is which is very sort of interesting to see these different sides of the show. Definitely, the first season um, by I think not quite having established its formula yet, it was doing a lot of really interesting things. So you've got all these side characters who kind of come and go. You're seeing different areas of the ship. Um, you're getting these different these different plots, um, and I think it the the potential that you kind of feel bursting out of this first season, um, and it, it the show really does focus in um, in year two and in year three as we're gonna see, and sort of becomes like the cliched version of Star Trek. But I think so many seeds are just sown in this first season. And some of them still haven't sprouted, but the the franchise is always sort of like going back and seeing what's out there. If you noticed a, a uh, cut in the recording there, it's because our software completely broke, but we are back now. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> Uh, so I had the most boring candidate for uh, worst episode of season one, uh, which I think we can at least agree is the worst produced episode of season one, which is the alternative factor. <laughs> I think that's the easy answer for, for that one. Um, I, I actually had, and we discussed this a little bit while we were setting this back up, I had a very different take and what I think might be quite a controversial one. Um, obviously, alternative factor is... is the worst episode of series one there's no doubt about it to me but if i had to pick a different episode i was saying to patrick before i would go, go with the squire of gothos which <laughs> i'm told is a controversial take but i cannot stand trelane i just can't stand him well and so and so my gag was uh it probably plays different here in america because we just think that everybody in the uk is like trelane <laughs> You know, so we don't see the issue. It's, it seems like a perfectly natural conflict. <laughs> no, I, I like I like Squire. It's probably in my top half, if only just. Um, it feels a lot more relevant after TNG because Trelane is such a prototype for Q. Yeah, um, I think that's something that I'll I'll sort of come to appreciate it more once I've experienced <laughs> Q as a character. Definitely. And I think the, the, the summing up of Spock, you know, dismissing this guy who could, you know, turn him into dust with a, with a thought, and he doesn't care. He says, you're power without constructive purpose. So to me, that's the point. You, you know, Trelane is, is a complete shit, obviously, um, and that it's not about the might doesn't make right, in other words. The wisdom makes right. And so... So the deus ex machina, you know, of his parents coming in is, you know, they're the same kind of creature he is, but they're just, they're, they're wiser, not superior. Yeah, I think that was what bothered me about watching it, though, is like you said, that deus ex machina, it didn't feel like any of the crew of the Enterprise had any impact on the outcome of the story. <laughs> like, Kirk wasn't saved by quick his quick wit or his intellect he was saved by some other creature going along and telling Trelane to stop being a prick well it's well it's it's true um and it, and it just has to do with whether you're into that the tradition or not i mean deus ex machina literally goes back to greek theater um and if and if you think of it arena is kind of the same way and over and over you the, or the original series encounters these creatures that could you know again wipe us out with a wave of the hand but they just choose not to 
and then that's where the conflict plays out. But, you know, it it plays the way it plays, and if you, you if you don't love to hate Trelane, then you're just gonna hate him and you'll hate and you'll hate <laughs> the episode, so it makes perfect sense. That's true. Yeah, that's very true, I think. Uh Pikachu, did you have a least favorite episode from series uh, one? Uh, Space Seed. I think I think I have a very different outlook towards Space Seed and Khan and Wrath of Khan in general that will probably make most of fandom look at me sideways. But I I just I don't like Khan. And I think it's just from like the first moment he just just rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> it's so consistently annoying to me and has nothing to do with like Ricardo Montalban's performance, which I thought was really great. And I love Ricardo Montalban, but it's just the character. I, I could not take him seriously. And the story, like this idea of and, and I think I was mostly really bothered by the fact that even as a child, I was like, why did you guys give him access to like your super secret classified military data? And why are you just chatting with him like, oh, sure, yeah, this one isn't a genocidal murderer. <laughs> you know, sure, let's take him to dinner and all that stuff. And then they just left him on a planet somewhere and I was like, well, yeah, sure, that's not going to come back and bite you in the ass. <laughs> My... I will I will say I I don't disagree with any of that. Space Seed uh, Contra Squire is in my back half of season one, <laughs> and not particularly far up the scale either. Um, in a in Lower Decks, which is the recent uh, kind of parody yet also canon Star Trek animated series, there are two characters getting in an argument over uh, who's a better villain, um, Khan or. Uh, <laughs> Roga Danar, who's a one-off villain from, uh, not even a villain, from TNG. And I was with the character who's kind of the, the geeky character. But I was saying, yeah, Danar, he was way more threatening than Khan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, Khan just got a cooler movie, you know. <laughs> well, and, and, and Wrath of Khan is, is clearly, I appreciate all the artistry. It's, it's not my favorite Star Trek film. Uh, it's, it's a good film. Um, but to me, I, I do think Khan is a strange artifact when taken in in the whole context of, of the franchise. Um, yeah. And I was very <laughs> frustrated um, with uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, the, the film in the, in the redone timeline, which uh, probably doesn't help. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's kind of it's whatever. <laughs> like, there's... <laughs> There's moments in Space Seed that I love, and this is also characteristic of season one, that the the side characters, they didn't always show up in every episode, Scotty and Uhura and Sulu, but when they did, they always did something supremely badass. And that's a great episode for Uhura and Scotty, and that's kind of what I took away from it. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, I, th I, think, I think we can agree on that. Um, we'll move on because we've spent far too long talking about series one now. Um, series two, same sort of same sort of process. What was your favorite episodes? Doomsday Machine. Damn it! Yes. I mean, Matt Decker is my second most favorite Star Trek character, so there's no way Doomsday Machine is not at the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair I'm actually I'm I'm going to disagree with you both on that one and this is purely down to 
my personal taste when it comes to sci-fi as a whole. But Mirror Mirror is my favourite easily. Mm. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm an absolute sucker for any sort of alternate timeline evil variant type story. It's similar with <laughs> obviously with my enjoyment of Doctor Who and stuff like that. It's very much like those are always going to be my favourite sort of stories because I love seeing characters go up against alternate and sometimes evil versions of themselves. You'll be um, having fun with Discovery. <laughs> yeah, well, in so in so many of the so many of the cliches though, like they really date to that that episode. Like I'm, you know, one of my other uh, nerd nerd degrees is in Transformers, and there's this whole realm of Transformers that's based oh God, on Mirror yes. Mirror, the the shattered glass. Um, and and it's just it's the 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 resonance of the original series is so profound that you just find it everywhere. And, I think that's something I picked up on a lot as well. Is a lot of sci-fi tropes either came from the original series or were popularized by it. Mm-hmm. I, I think you see that a lot throughout the original series, definitely. Well, and you know, and not everybody can can do a deep dive into literature. Right, but like what they did was they got sci-fi authors of the time to write for TV, and it introduced these ideas in a framework that was more accessible to people. Absolutely, yeah. I th- I, th- I think obviously as much as those ideas it did exist a lot, Star Trek is definitely responsible for their popularity. I, I definitely agree with that. All right. Well, uh, Doomsday Machine. I I I. I like the starship action and you get like two or three really good starship action episodes in a season. So that's why I rate Doomsday Machine. But like a better comedy than that is an action is probably Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah, that's, that's very fair. It is definitely, it, it's, it's an interesting one. It's very... It's very much from a comedic tone, but yeah, no, I do agree with that. Well, it, well, and it's like we were saying, Conscious of the King is like, you know, this is a totally different story that just happens to be told with this setting. And Trouble with Tribbles is, you know, David Gerald waking up one day and saying, hey, you know, I could just do this farce. It's on the starship, and it has all of the characters that we love, and even bringing the Klingons in again and cementing them in this universe. But, like, I'm just going to do a farce. And it... You know, it it really expanded, I think, what Trek could be. And it's had this sort of uneasy relationship with comedy, which I think now it's embraced, because you have lower decks and all this stuff. (laughs) I'm still waiting for the story of the great Klingon and Tribble (laughs) War. The Tribble Hunt. I'm I'm waiting for that. That war story needs to happen one of these days. Well, it, it, it's it's worth asking you, Pikachu, because um, it's going to be a while before uh, our our captain gets there. Uh, but do you, I don't know if you watch the lower deck, the not lower decks, the short treks, shorts. Yes. Okay, yeah, because they had a take on the tribbles in there too. Oh yeah, certainly yes. <laughs> the trouble with Edward. <laughs> Many troubles have had with Edward. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to think, though, that I, it hadn't occurred to me until you just mentioned it, Patrick, but Trouble with Tribbles, if I'm remembering correctly, would have been the first reappearance of the Klingons, then, after yeah. Errand of Mercy. Yeah, they even mentioned the Organians. Yeah, so it could easily be argued that without Trouble with Tribbles, they could have remained a one-off villain. 
Maybe. I think the pri a private little war was already uh, in production. So I think there is, you know, in, in the Season 2 Bible, I think there was this commitment to using the Klingons a bit more. But, but yeah, historically, that's, you know. And then, of course, Koloth, the character, who is played by the same actor as Trelane. Don't know if you caught it. Yeah. Um, is this, that's why he's the smarmiest Klingon in the galaxy. Um, but then he even recurred in Deep Space Nine 30 years later. Yes, I have heard that. I, obviously, I've not got to it yet, but I have, I have been told... Yep. I think Klingons and Tribbles go hand in hand. So, you know, if there is a Klingon nearby, there should be a Tribble. There's such so. polar opposites because you have the, <laughs> you know, Klingons are always trying to tell this, like, barbarian sort of story, you know, and emphasizing the violence and the action. And then the Tribbles are just ridiculous. You literally can't <laughs> take them seriously. I really need to see that war story, you know? And mm. I want to know who won. Won. <laughs> Oh, the Tribbles, obviously. <laughs> True. Klingons I mean, wouldn't have a clue what to do, would they? I want to see how it happened. <laughs> no, absolutely. So that's, that's... Do they have battle armor? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tribble battle armor would just be a hamster ball, surely. <laughs> but that would be so effective. <laughs> You know, you could even you could even go back in time and, you know, not to spoil anything retroactively, but it turns out that Tribble's antipathy for Klingons actually predates their super breeding ability. <laughs> so it makes me wonder if there's even more history back there somewhere. Yeah, maybe the maybe the Enterprise time can <laughs> oh, God. explore some of that. I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, so that's that's sort of a look at uh, favorite episodes. We'll try and speed this up a bit to get to season sure, three sure. quickly. But just quickly, any oh. least favorite episodes from series two? Anything that you weren't so keen on? Uh, I haven't seen all of season two. I've seen most of it. Um, I so I I can't speak of the ones that I have deliberately avoided because I know I wouldn't like them. Uh, <laughs> But I was probably most frustrated with Assignment Earth out of the ones I've actually seen. I think my least favorite is probably Cat's Paw, but that's also one of the more hilarious episodes, <laughs> so I'm not too mad about That's one of the ones I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, you're not missing much. <laughs> but it, it's just, it's really funny. <laughs> like, it's, it's a great Halloween episode, though. It's just like if you need something like funny and amusing to watch on Halloween, just turn on Cat's Paw, and it's just hilarious. Yeah, I think I'm series two is one where I'm looking at the episode titles now, and a lot more of them are episodes that sit that are quite forgettable. There are obviously some classics in there, but a lot of it I'm looking at it and I'm going, "What was that episode again?" One that I know. <laughs> And I genuinely cannot remember a single thing that happened in the episode right now. I'd have to look at the sort of synopsis. But one that I remember really not enjoying when I did watch it was Metamorphosis. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. basically a, a trivia question of an episode. The only the only thing that really endured from that was the character of Zephram Cochran. And even then, he's, he's not the same. <laughs> Yeah, it was very odd. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's certainly a weird one. And the whole sort of taking over the woman's body and mm -hmm. then 
the war that she was supposed to be preventing, they just kind of forget about and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which Man is who needs them? Which is something that we'll come on to a bit with one of the episodes in the Blocker series three that we're going to talk about as well, because there was one mm. that I noticed where again that <laughs> the original series has this habit of forgetting things that it set up earlier in the episode. Or just casual sexism. Yeah, also casual sexism. Yeah, but there was. I, think, I would. I would almost say, I almost mentioned this a moment ago, I think the sexism is is very deeply baked into the show, and I think it does come from sort of the inherent contradiction of Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. Um, who, if you know, if you research sort of his life and the things he said and the things he did, he had incredibly progressive beliefs for the, for the 60s in some respects, and then incredibly regressive sexual views kind of throughout his life um and you can see that direct that tension sometimes playing out very directly like you mentioned that episode of the cage where you know pike like reacts to one woman completely differently than he reacts to the other and sometimes it seems like episodes go out of their way to say like oh you know this is why uh I, I can't think of any quotes, but like there, one of the X Men movies literally used it as a punchline. Like, this is why we don't have women in the CIA, <laughs> and it just seems like so, it, too many of the treks kind of like loop back around to that for me to go. Oh, that's just TV in the sixties. Yeah, so I, I think obviously, again, as someone who's very new to Star Trek and very unaware of the sort of politics going on behind the scenes in the 60s. I think the impression I've got from what I've heard about Gene Roddenberry is he was someone who was very, very keen to make people think he was progressive, even if he wasn't necessarily always as progressive as he claimed to be. You know, and you could say in 1964, you know, take Gene Roddenberry and take sort of the typical men of the time and he looks pretty good, um, but then with him not really changing or altering his views in a meaningful way after that. Yeah, I think that was something that I saw um, with the Star Trek Twitter account doing these daily Rodenberry tweets at the moment with quotes from him, was that he did say something somewhere along those lines to the extent of he... I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of I hope that in 50 years' time my views now are seen as regressive because society needs mm -hmm. to improve that much by then. Yeah, I mean, I think what, whatever Rodenberry's faults are... I, I think he was very genuine about being a humanist. So I think in that respect, he did really have those kind of beliefs. But also, you know, everybody's kind of personal situation is a little different. So I, I think, you know, it's kind of like a few steps forward, a few steps back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, so that's... that's series one and two out of the way and sort of a very quick look at those because obviously with the never seen trek project i've already seen those and we're starting the podcast with episode uh, sorry with season <laughs> with season three um so we'll crack on with that now and we're going to take a slightly more in-depth in look at the episodes obviously the first six episodes of season three um but yeah let's crack on so spock's brain <laughs> oh boy <laughs> this is um I mean, the, fir the first notes I have here, because I, I collected some trivia, like I said, and the first notes I have here are two quotes, one from uh, William Shatner and one from Leonard Nimoy, 
Um, and Shatner said that he believed this was one of the worst episodes of any program he'd ever filmed. Uh, whilst Nimoy said that he was embarrassed during the entire shooting. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of this, uh, I, I mentioned fan mythology uh, a while ago. Um, so this show is in a lot of turmoil in, uh, in season three. Um, you know, Gene Roddenberry essentially stepped back to an advisory role. Like he was, he was going to the next big thing, right? Um, Assignment Earth didn't end up becoming a spinoff. He was disillusioned with uh, running TV. Um, he basically wanted to like sell stuff at this point. Um, and so there was a shakeup behind the scenes. There was a letter writing campaign to save the show um, because it looked like they were going to pull the plug after season two. And yeah. <laughs> we can we can debate if uh, if that would have been a good or a bad thing, um, and so the rumor that fans essentially started is you know uh, we mentioned Spock's brain was written by uh, Gene Kuhn under his pseudonym Lee Cronin, and uh, it's been put forward that he wrote it as as almost this this protest, and I think even even Shatner has endorsed this. Um, I uh, I stumbled across him saying. Uh, uh, and, and Shatner jokes a lot. <laughs> he's he's a comic, but uh, he said, "I think Spock's brain is a satire on uh, the uh, mental capacities of network censors." <laughs> and and you know, and that sort of becomes the narrative, like because everybody can can kick those guys when they're down. But the the strange thing is, it, it Spock's brain aired first. But it was produced sixth. So someone somewhere thought this was putting their best foot forward. Um, and, well, you know, I mean, technically, we did see Spock putting his foot forward, so I guess <laughs> that's what they were going for. So I don't, you know, I don't think it was it was it was written in bad faith. But I think at at some point, you know, where the new producers or the network said, you know, this is just. We're just going to give them Crazy Space Show if they want Crazy Space Show. You know, we're going to give them Spock. We're going to give them this kind of sensationalist story. And we're going to give them a machine that is just the Nomad machine with a glove on top of it. <laughs> Genuinely, it, it, I, again, going back to the... Going back nomad to the fact, makes the rounds. Nomad does make the rounds, and he comes up a lot in this block of episodes. I think he's in at least two of them. Possibly three, um, but it is literally the controller from this episode is literally just the Nomad machine with a glove taped to the top of it. <laughs> Which is, um, no, yeah, definitely budget. I mean, uh, something again that we'll come on to later is very little of series three well in fact only one episode of series three, which we'll come on to later as the Paradise Syndrome, was filmed on location. Everything else was uh, studio sets. According to my research, at the very least. Well, I mean, the you know the show never shot much on location. Like, I can only really think of shore leave in season one as being another exception. Um, but they weren't even able to do the kind of things that they could do before. Like, they weren't able to afford extras. Um, you know, they weren't able to uh, afford uh, model shooting, effects shooting. Um, just deprived on on kind of every level of the basics and in some cases i think this is actually a good thing when we get to the melkotians and the medusans it made them get real creative when it came to presenting non-humans um but that but it it hurt the show to to not have resources no i i definitely agree with that i think it's something that you can 
tracking a lot of sci-fi again going back to one of my big hobbies outside of Star Trek being Doctor Who and Doctor Who in the classic era there was a very notable drop in the sort of 70s and 80s where the budget dropped the uh, aptitude of any of the writers to yeah, drop you see you see you see the regime changes and it's and it's it it's interesting to have that comparison because you know I'm not a who expert but you know I've seen it I've read about it and it's got that kind of built-in flexibility where in retrospect you clearly have like eras of the show um, and I think season three's Trek was trying to transform into something not particularly good <laughs> and it just kind of petered out in the end in the end no it, it I could def- obviously I've only seen the first six episodes so far because I'm watching these as we go so that it's fresh in my mind for the podcast but I think from those six episodes I can definitely see that yeah they, they were trying something different and wasn't always for the better. I know what else went with the budget. Go on. Security people. Yeah, there's there's very <laughs> few of them. Where just like from from the minute like the the woman like popped into the room, I was like, why did Uhura have to call the security guard <laughs> to get onto the bridge? I was like, shouldn't you have security people on the bridge anyways? Yeah, like, and they all they all just stop and stare at her. It's like, <laughs> yeah. do you want to do anything? That was that was literally in my notes, like capital letters. I was just like, why does everyone just stare at her? Like they don't do anything. Nobody reacts. They just stand there for like a good five seconds, just looking at her. I'm like, great, you have a woman that just appeared out of nowhere. Can you please stun her? Like- to be to be fair, they might have been reacting to the outfit. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Well, you know, well, they, had no, they had no problem stunning, stunning that, that other, other woman when they got in through the door that, 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 that time later. Ah, uh, yeah, but she was facing away from them. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk, Kirk will only shoot at someone if it's in the back. Yeah, so I think you. So when it comes to this episode, you know, you have the ridiculous plot device, and I, you know, in context, it's. It's treated as a ridiculous plot device. Like, the story is that this impossible thing has happened. So, you know, I'll give him, I'll give him a little credit for that. Um, and, the, you know, some of the problem-solving scenes with, uh, with uh, Chekhov and Sulu on the bridge, like, saying, which of these planets are we going to explore? Like, that was, you know, that was interesting storytelling. You know, you could nitpick it, but it was, you know, it was something they were, they were really trying. Um then you get to the planet and you know you it's it's not a bad sort of like ontological mystery at first but then it's not really complicated enough to last out the hour and so they just get like stunned and dragged around over and over to pad out the time and then they fight these guards pad out the time um and then we also, get they to can't the, seem to fight very well either yeah and then we <laughs> and then when you get to the end and all the mysteries have been solved it's like Oh, so what you're saying is that women can't run a society. They need they need a man's brain, and then they need a supply of male bodies, um, and then they just atrophy and turn into these childlike minds, which somehow McCoy can diagnose from across the room. And it's series three, McCoy turned into a magician for a few episodes yeah. I think there's a lot and of it, and it, just going you have this and it's like how how and you know so it's you, this episode gets you coming and going like first of all you're sitting down and watching something called Spock's brain but it's like okay I'm gonna watch this and I'm gonna engage with this in good faith 
um, and talk about what it does well. And then you get to the end and it's like, well, that's just not a very good message at all. <laughs> they also just literally like forced a woman into like having all that knowledge <laughs> as mm -hmm. well. You're just like, wow, that, I, that, I, that was brilliant. Okay, I will say though that the guest star, uh, you know, it may have been a stupid assignment, but she executed it really oh, well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was brain very brain. What is brain? She, she understood she the assignment. The assignment. <laughs> yeah, no, I think she was just having fun with it as well. Yeah, like, she, the, was, she was really the obvious, The obvious brain and brain, what is brain line. I could tell that she, was, I don't she enjoyed that. I think she could have delivered, delivered it any better. better. I think that I was think genius. That no, absolutely. I completely well, agree. Well, the, the way that she transforms when they put her in the machine, it... I, I just think it was really effective. Like, okay, you she has access to this whole knowledge base now. It changes how you speak and how you carry yourself, but her goals were still the same. Yeah. And so I thought she played that aspect of it really well. No, absolutely. I do agree with that. You know what was really funny, though? Uh, so we had Chekhov and two security guys that were standing outside, <laughs> right? And they just start randomly start a fire and just kind of like did nothing. <laughs> The rest of the episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They just it, it's more. It's more padding. It's like, oh, okay. They're reminding you that you can use phasers to heat up rocks. <laughs> and then Kirk is like, oh, this is a highly complex civilization. And then all I could think about was that, yeah, I'm pretty sure eight-year-old me could have outsmarted all of them in like five minutes. And I don't know why the brightest minds of the galaxy have just been like slowly meandering around the hallways <laughs> and then just getting caught. <laughs> yeah, I think this episode does suffer from padding a lot because something on, I'm looking through my uh, live tweet threads as we talk about this to sort of remember what I thought as I was watching it. And something that I picked up on there is there is a good two or three minutes of Chekhov and Kirk just expositing what an M-class... Try again. Just expositing what an M-class planet is to the audience. And it's like, it, people either are already big fans of this franchise and know what an M-class planet is, or are just tuning in for the sake of it and probably don't care. You're just padding out the episode now. I do, oh, I do appreciate that the battle scenes, like when they were fighting uh, the the giant people on the on the surface, and it's just literally people standing out in the open. And I'm like, I the security team is utterly useless in this case. <laughs> they don't have to be here. <laughs> Why? <laughs> they're just literally standing out there throwing rocks. <laughs> like I don't know what they're doing anymore. <laughs> one one thing I did quite well, I say quite like one thing that felt very um very apt as well is when Kirk is talking to those the, the men on the surface the um, and obviously trying to ascertain what's going on and why there are no women around the men, the one man who he's talking to says they come for all of us and Kirk's immediate response is do they come for your women as well <laughs> because Kirk doesn't care unless there's a damsel in distress <laughs> Well, and and I, I guess Kirk was saying that the women also deserve uh, pain and delight. <laughs> to be honest, knowing Kirk, he probably wanted to uh, to provide both of those as well. <laughs> yeah, which gets me into like the the. I think a good bit of the like pop culture stereotype of Kirk comes from this season, and to some extent from season two, because it just they. 
you know, you, you didn't have the sort of like alien chick of the week really at all in season one. One. No, if anything, I think something I noticed in season one is Kirk is almost awkward around women. He's quite yeah. a, not yeah. not shy, but very. He doesn't know how to act around them. And then series two and three, he just becomes. I want to shag everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also thought it was really funny when they say, "Oh, we're gonna stun them because." Uh, they need to be conscious to speak to them. I'm like, if you stun them, they're not going to be conscious. Yeah, they can never really decide if they're like magic sleep rays or tasers. So they have to tell you in the dialogue what which it's going to be this time. It's like, yeah, we're just going to stun them, but we need them to be conscious. But like, then they stun the guy and he wasn't conscious for like a good minute. So I'm like, ah, it's, your, your phaser seems a bit confused. But also, they just like walk into the door. They're like, "Oh, this is a trap." Obviously, I'm like, "Yeah," and you just walked right into it, like very casually. <laughs> All of you just decided to walk right into this trap that was set, and nobody is just like, "Oh no, we're just gonna casually walk around here and then walk back out and then walk back in." Great trap. I think something I've something I've said a couple times again with my uh, with my tweeting <laughs> is that it often feels like maybe 60 to 70 percent of the conflict in the original series wouldn't happen if any of the crew had a single brain cell between them (laughs) (laughs) well that that is the purpose of my entire osha commentary is that i was just about to bring it on to as well did you have any um particular osha comments for this episode well i mean my osha comments are literally just security sucks on this ship, as we will continue to see in further episodes. They just absolutely suck. I don't know what security Starfleet is training, but clearly they're not very useful at all (laughs) because they don't do the job they're supposed to be doing. The ship is not secure, I can tell you that. (laughs) And also, they don't have something to like block people from just randomly teleporting into the ship. Like, given, like, the millionth time that somebody has just randomly beamed into the ship, I feel like they should have figured out something to block them. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, I think. I mean, there's there's something to be said for advanced civilizations being able to get around Starfleet's technology, but not to the extent that it happens every episode. I mean, at at least the, the thing that I can appreciate in TOS is that the Enterprise has handrails. Not that they're very useful handrails, to be honest, but at least they're there. Well, so they're good, I they're can good look for at them. slamming into while they're shaking <laughs> exactly. the camera. So I'm not exactly sure if they're like actually good for OSHA safety standards or if they're actually just they're safety, just safety hazards. hazards. That is something that, um, that I noticed with this episode as well, though, going back to what you were just saying there, Patrick, about uh, what I think I've seen referred to quite a lot as the Star Trek shake mm-hmm. um, and the crew just very much throwing themselves around. We don't get that explicitly in this episode but we do get a scene of everyone fainting <laughs> and the first the, the, the thing, the one thing that I wrote down in my notes for this scene of everyone fainting, fainting is everyone falls to the floor pretty much instantly except for Nurse Chapel who overdramatically <laughs> throws herself around the room for about five minutes <laughs> You know, I mean, she, she you, really you, you just have to it. think that that Barrett was like, "This is my one scene in this episode, <laughs> and I'm gonna make it count." <laughs> she really did it. She she just she she was like, "I am doing 
I am doing this dramatic fall, and I'm going for it. <laughs> uh, although, I don't know if, like, has Starfleet ever taught them, like, how to fall properly? Because I feel like a lot of them just slam into things. <laughs> like, they don't know how to fall properly, and that's somewhat concerning, because I'm like, how many head trauma does McCoy have to deal with constantly because, like, they just flail their arms when they're falling all over the place? Well, according to McCoy, that's probably what a lot of com what's affecting a lot of command decisions. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all the head trauma. I'd say maybe it's intentional, because obviously so much of their... Uh, illnesses and stuff can be cured without the need of a doctor anymore. Maybe they, maybe they just purposely throw themselves around to give McCoy something to do. Um, but I'll just throw out a couple of couple of bits of trivia that I picked up that we hadn't touched on before we move on. Um, obviously, Leonard Nimoy in this episode playing Spock as basically a robot. There's no brain in there. I think it's a testament to how committed to the roles that they played, they, the actors in the original series were, Nimoy does not blink once through the entire episode. Mm -hmm. I think he Which blinked I, once. I think there was one scene he blinked. He, the, he may well have done it. This is according to IMDb's fact sheet, which may be wrong. <laughs> but um, Well, I'm not checking. No. <laughs> I, that, that, to check, I would have to rewatch Spock's brain. So, no. <laughs> it was uh, the first appearance of Scotty's new hairstyle, which I think we can all unanimously agree is a fucking awful decision um Enterprise incident this one I thought was a lot better than Spock's brain I'll be honest I'm interested to see what you you two's thoughts are but I, I very much enjoyed this one it's I think it's most people would say it's one of the few genuine classics that come out of season three um I you know I've got some frustrations with it but uh you know, it. I think it's a defining episode for the Romulans, for better or worse. And, like, you know, it's. You do get some frustrations in the setup, like, because the Romulans are complete nitwits for the whole third act, and they're. <laughs> They're flying Klingon ships because literally they were sponsored to use the model. <laughs> um. Saying what you were saying as well about it being uh, very sort of defining for the Romulans, I didn't realise this until doing the research for this because obviously I've not seen much further than this. But I mean, you guys might tell me that this is absolutely incorrect as well. But according to the IMDb fact sheet, this was also their last live-action appearance until Next Generation. So for twenty yes, years, yes. they just weren't a thing. Yeah. So the whole fan conception of the Romulans comes from Balance of Terror and the Enterprise incident. They're barely in the deadly years. They're just a plot device. So Balance of Terror introduces them as formidable adversaries who come from the Vulcans. And then the Enterprise incident introduces this idea of a detente between Romulans and Vulcans and has Spock commit to that idea. And in the long term, that's going to be a very defining trait of Spock as he survives into the next generation era and into even the modern era of storytelling. Yeah, that was something that I, I very much picked up on whilst watching this episode, and I did ask about it. I don't, I think it was you who, who responded to it as well, about how much of a difference there is between Romulans and Vulcans as a species. Yeah. Because yeah. this episode very much seemed to be 
maybe not explicitly implying, but at the very least giving some level of impression that they were just the same species and that defecting across meant becoming a Romulan. Which obviously, as I've been informed, is not the case. Yeah, it's, you know, it kind of depends on the writer and their own, the extent of their limits of their knowledge of biology. Um, what seems to be consistent is that the Romulans and the Vulcans have been separated long enough and culturally estranged enough so that even when Vulcan joins the Federation, they don't know who these Romulan people are um, without seeing them. There's no, there's not much of a surviving uh, record. So culturally, they're very estranged. Biologically, that wouldn't be time for much difference to emerge. Um, but there do seem to be consistent differences, like, you know, humans can beat up Romulans, whereas they can't do that with Vulcans. And Romulans somewhat consistently are not depicted with any of the, the telepathic powers of Vulcans. I think you can hand wave that as saying that's kind of a, that's kind of a nurture thing. Like, Vulcan is a different environment than Romulus, and the Vulcans have a different culture than the Romulans. So, we know that they possess the potential to hybridize and assimilate back into a whole, um, but they are estranged enough so that Vulcan and Romulan does mean something other than what planet you came from. I noticed something that was very funny. Um, when, the, when the Romulan sub-commander Tall uh, pops in on the view screen. At some point, it does like a zoom in. <laughs> and, and here I was thinking, how does that zoom in thing work? Like, <laughs> like, like, it was like at first it started out as a wide shot, and then like some point they cut back and he's just like zoomed in. And I Dramatic was like, zoom setting on your threatening uh, <laughs> yeah. display. No, it's just another Romulan behind the camera moving it closer. <laughs> Like that—that that was also like my concern when uh when Balance of Terror in that episode. I was like, so we've never seen these Romulans before, yet we somehow have a camera inside their ship that's able to let us see what they look like. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, so Commander Tal there as well. I wasn't aware of this, in fact I wasn't aware there was any crossover whatsoever, but the actor who plays Subcommander Tal, uh, Jack Donor, uh, he is one of, according, again, according to IMDB, so a lot of my facts that I'm talking about in this episode may end up not being true, but according to IMDB, he's one of only three actors to appear in both the original series and in Enterprise, huh. where he plays a Vulcan priest. So he's not only one of the few actors to be in original series and Enterprise, but he's also both a Romulan and a Vulcan. <laughs> nice, nice, very nice. Very nice. Which is a nice little touch. Um, um, something that I uh, picked up on whilst watching this as well, which didn't occur to me straight away, and it was sort of one of these th thoughts that pops into your head like an hour later or something, but the Romulan commander who isn't named in the episode, and I'll come on to her names later because there's a couple in the extended canon uh, she's the first female starship commander we, ex we see in the entire Star Trek uh, franchise I believe mm, I, th I think so I think as yeah, a starship captain you're not, you're, you're not wrong and as, and as a peer of Starfleet if not Starfleet itself yeah. and yeah that makes that makes an impact and I think it's 
you know, it's easy, it's easy for us to say today, like, oh, you know, why is she falling for all this stuff? Uh, you know, she obviously is deceived very trivially by, by Spock and doesn't seem that formidable. But, like, just having her there is a statement. And it's kind of like we were discussing on Twitter in the Ultimate Computer. You know, Daystrom may go binky bonkers, but he's still, you know, this is the smartest man in the Federation and he's black. So this was a series of deliberate statements from a show in the 60s that was trying to epitomize the liberal viewpoint. Absolutely, yeah. Although, as, as, I, as I mentioned, we still don't actually get her name at all in the entire episode. <laughs> well, we don't, get the, we don't get Mark Leonard's Romulan commander name either. So it's, it's a little, little, little bit of a tradition, tradition there. there. Yeah. According to according to the research I did, apparently the novel Price of the Phoenix eventually named her as Dion Charvon. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Although a lot of the trivia there refer in, in that IMDb list refers to her as Liviana, so I don't know where that came from. So the author Diane Duane, who's a great follow on uh, on Twitter, by the way. Um, yeah, I believe I do. Yeah. She wrote a very defining series of novels about the Romulans, and she does not directly depict the Romulan commander, but her major Romulan character, um, A.L., is revealed to be either the aunt or the great aunt of the Romulan commander in this episode. And she develops this very intense, very flirtatious relationship with Kirk, actually, it, it never goes anywhere because she's got bigger and better things to do, but they just have this really interesting kind of energy between them. And, you know, and she winds up uh, going into exile and needing Starfleet's help to prevent a genocide and then somehow ends up being like Emperor of Romulus at some point in there. So it's a, it's a, it's a heck of a yarn. <laughs> I also I also really love in this episode where um, they like point out like Spock being a Vulcan means he can't lie, and I just keep thinking Spock lies so much. Yeah, the thing <laughs> with Vulcans no can't idea. lie is a lie. <laughs> they're, they're like they're like he's a Vulcan, he can't lie, and I'm just like the dude lies. <laughs> All the time, he is a lying, a lying machine. machine. <laughs> well, I saw, I saw a, and I don't know what book this is from because obviously I've not read many of them yet. But there, it was a screen cap from, or a photo yeah, yeah. from a Star Trek book, which was someone saying to him, um, "You're a Vulcan. That means you can't lie, right?" And his response, and the response is just, "Correct. Spock lied." <laughs> <laughs> but like that's the thing, really. It's like, it's like. Yeah, but he, yeah, he is Vulcan, but he's also like half Vulcan, so he he's totally lying. <laughs> he totally. Well, it's one of those things that that writers and fans couldn't agree later if it was an actual like hard and fast rule, or if it was something someone said ironically or in jest <laughs> or as a generality. So. But Spock definitely lies a oh, lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no there's no menagerie if Spock doesn't lie. <laughs> Well, that was the whole thing in the menagerie, where it's just like Spock is like, yeah, no, no, sure, yeah, I did. I, I, I never disobeyed your orders, Captain. I'm like, that, that's yeah. why Pi keep beeping no, because yeah, no, you've disobeyed my orders. You're also a liar. That was something. Uh, just touching on the menagerie quickly as well. That I always confused me about that episode was 
how resistant Pike was to the whole thing. Like, the entire episode, he's saying, fucking stop it. <laughs> like, he keeps going, no, 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 no. And, and Spock's just like, yeah, but what if yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is what happens when you raise children by telling them, hey, yeah, mutiny is a great idea. <laughs> And then you role model mutiny for them. Of course they're going to go and commit mutiny themselves. I mean, Spock's role models in his life are just constantly committing mutiny. So I don't know why they're surprised that he did it. He did it. Well, yeah. So, um, so obviously, as, as we find out towards the end of the episode, in this episode, they're after this cloaking device. What is the cloaking device model? <laughs> it's the head of fucking Nomad. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but when Kirk but just Kirk picks up the whole cloaking device and starts running, I was concerned for a second. I'm like, is he just gonna like carry this and like run down the hallway? I'm like, oh no, 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 he's beaming out. Okay, that makes there's... me feel a lot better because I was gonna be like, buddy, you're not hiding. There's that a great, in there's your a shirt. great. Um, like vaudeville style gag in Deep Space Nine many years later where two characters are carrying a cloaking device which is cloaked <laughs> <laughs> so it's just done in pantomime it's, it's fantastic yeah I think so one of the things that, that irrationally bothers me about the Enterprise incident and I think it bothers a lot of people because people like edit this out they like just fanned this out of existence immediately but in the actual script, and and the episode is filmed, everybody acts like the Romulan cloaking device is a new thing. And it's, yeah, you know, the whole episode Balance of Terror was about dealing with this uh, invisibility cloak. And clearly this whole episode is written as a thematic, if not literal, sequel to that. Um, you know, because the Romulan's whole shtick is this invisibility cloak. But at, at some point, they did a pass to dumb down the script because someone was like, you can't refer to something that happened in season one and, and just made it completely well, I mean, self-contained. This, this could be a new cloaking device. Like, yeah, but that's the thing. That's, that's the rationalization that everybody <laughs> kind of settled on, but it's, but it's not there in the text. Everyone but just talks about it like it's a new thing. It's also kind of funny, though. When you think of the whole history of cloaking devices... Especially with Discovery, it's just also kind of well. Really yeah, funny. Discovery. Discovery sort of almost went out of its way, and I applaud this. But Discovery <laughs> blew up about forty-five years of ironclad fanon. Uh, <laughs> so based on this episode, what everybody decided and was reflected in the novels and everything for years and years is that the Klingons sold Romulans their ships and gave them warp drive, and in return. The Romulans gave Klingons cloaking technology, which we then later see in the movie series and afterward. And it, it fit all of the available facts. But later on, the canon of the franchise was just like, nah. The Romulans always had warp drive, and the uh, Klingons invented cloaking devices themselves. It's like, it's like okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, why not? So, a um, couple of bits of trivia about this episode, just... Uh, finish off the list of stuff that I've got written down. Um, something that I noticed I think happens more in Series 3 I think it's a theme throughout the original series as a whole but particularly in Series 3 is that this episode was very much inspired by a real life incident. This episode was yes, inspired yes. by the Pueblo incident um, with yeah, North Korea capturing the USS Pueblo 
and I think yep. I think we yep. see that more a little bit in Paradise Syndrome with obviously with the um, uh, with the Native Americans and going forward there is this sort of theme more of taking real life stuff and applying a sci-fi sort of tint to it I think it's always the ambition of Star Trek to be commenting on the world. And I think they, they lost a little bit of that energy in Season 2 because they just wound up killing a bunch of space monsters. But, you know, the Enterprise incident, I think, is a throwback, and it's why people respond to it so much. And it's an expression of Cold War tensions... But since you're telling it as sci-fi, you can say what you want to say without getting in trouble. <laughs> and and it's just good. And it's just good drama. I mean, Balance of Terror is a submarine drama, and it works because submarine drama works. And then the Enterprise incident is this is is a spy is a spy story, um, and it works because you can imagine the same thing happening between you know the United States and Korea or China. And then, of course, the Klingons are constantly stand-ins for the Soviets at this point. I thought it was really funny that um, the Romulans couldn't figure out that, oh, yeah, maybe the ship went backwards. <laughs> they were just like, yeah, no, we're just going to continue to shoot straight. And it, and it, didn't seem, <laughs> it didn't seem like they could prevent people from beaming on and off their ship. It... <laughs> It does devolve into an idiot plot if we assume it wasn't there in the first place. <laughs> because for, for this to make sense, and I think it happens as well because Kirk beams back to the Enterprise. Yeah. Which yeah. does seem to imply that neither the Romulan command ship or the Enterprise have their shields up for the entirety of this plot. <laughs> yep. I mean, that, that, that takes... That's part of my whole OSHA commentary for this episode. Um, well, that's 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 a good segue in. Then, was there anything else um, OSHA related for this episode? <laughs> oh, certainly. Uh, why were they not in battle stations the moment they crossed into Romulan space? They were like somebody had to tell them. Oh yeah, red alert, battle stations. I'm like, do do they really need to tell you though? Like, if you've crossed into Romulan space, shouldn't that just be automatically like, yeah, we should be in battle stations, not. Let's wait five minutes until the ships show up, and then we go to battle stations. That that seems really delayed. And also, when the uh, when the Romulan exchange like their people transports onto the ship, they transport in like pointing yeah, weapons. Yeah, and they pull their weapons. Yeah, and, and I didn't Scotty's understand just that. sitting there smiling, and like our guys just went in with like no weapons. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> we I do, need to think about our uh, tactics a little. I do enjoy every time Scotty's in command, though, because he's a badass. And he doesn't even hesitate. Throw, throw the hostages in the brig. <laughs> I think Scotty has, like, he, he gets a power trip sometimes. He's <laughs> just like, like when, when I'm in charge, I'm just going to, like, put everybody in the brig, and then I'm going to go do a bunch of I stuff. Mean, and you're like, Scotty, I mean, I, I love Sulu. I love Sulu, don't get me wrong, but I would watch Scott's Enterprise, the show, and every every episode would be done in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, because he killed everybody. <laughs> everybody would be dead. As well of, so I think, because from what I was reading up on, particularly in this early part of Series 3, 
uh, that James Duhan was getting quite frustrated with the sort of intervention that Paramount were having with the show, particularly, obviously, the obvious example being with his hair. Um, so I, I think, to an extent, there is an... I think that comes across in his performance a bit, because he does come across sometimes as a bit of a sort of fuck it, I want to go home kind of guy. <laughs> He's like, I'm, well, not, I'm yeah. not taking your shit. Also, the, the the tension between Shatner and the secondary cast was really boiling over. To be somewhat fair, that's what he was hired to be. You know, he was hired to be the hero of the show. He was a highly regarded, famous, dramatic actor. And they brought him in to anchor the show. And then, all of a sudden, kind of out of anyone's power or control, you know, the 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 audience decided that Nimoy was a co-lead. Not, not secondary, but co-lead and equal to Kirk. And so the studio leaned into that, and Shatner got really defensive. And so there was the rivalry between Nimoy and Shatner, and I think that they did regard each other as somewhat as equal partners in the rivalry. But Shatner would try and increase his part at Nimoy's expense by taking energy and lines and shots from the secondary cast who didn't have that leverage. And of course, the secondary cast were the marginalized people. The black woman, the Japanese man. Um, and they were... You can see it. They... Even as their characterization gets sharper over the years... The, their roles in the stories are sucked away. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is that is something I've noticed, and I think it's something that I picked up when I was researching for this, that out of the six episodes that we're talking about today, there's only one that has the entirety of the sort of secondary cast in it. Like They're, so they're, they're just you... missing a lot of the time. <laughs> so when you read between the lines, you know, Shatner and Nimoy, you know, they went at it really intense, but they sort of came out of that as friends, like sort of blood-forged brothers. Somehow, DeForest Kelly, just because he is a magical angel, his part <laughs> his part increased over the years, and he didn't piss every, anybody off. And Nimoy, uh, you know, Nimoy fought for his own role and realized his own clout, but he also stuck up for the secondary cast. Um, at one point, even, he was ready to tank the entire Star Trek animated series if they did not hire Nichelle and George. Oh, wow. But Shatner completely destroyed his relationship with what I would consider the four members of the secondary cast in what he took from them to compete with Nimoy. So that's where the rift is. Something that I actually picked up on myself when watching this as well, and I had to re uh, Google it because I was surprised. The uh, logo, the Romulan logo that appears on their ship, to the best of my knowledge and to the best of whatever whoever edits IMDb's knowledge, this is the only episode that features that particular logo until the remasters when they put it back into Balance of Terror. Uh, do, you mean, do you mean the logo on the ship? So it's, the... it's a diamond logo with three like coffin-shaped... Oh, wedges in it. Okay, then I, then I, I don't know anything uh, about not that. Not a diamond, one. sorry, a hexagon, sorry, not a diamond. Okay, um, yeah, then that's 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 news to me. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, it, it was um it was designed by Walter Jeffrey apparently, but um only ever appeared in that episode until it was 
uh, hmm. Hmm. sort of edited onto the side of the ship in the remaster of Balance of Terror, apparently. Um, Interesting. And other than that, the only bit of trivia I've got here, um, with regards to the Vulcan Death Grip, which, <laughs> as we know from the episode, does not exist, um, in one of the New Frontier books, I didn't actually get the name of the book itself, but one of the New Frontier books, a um, Vulcan character called Soletta uh, kills somebody, I, again it doesn't actually say who here um, with what she describes as a Vulcan death grip and when another character says to her well, there's no such thing, she turns, looks at the body, looks back at the person and goes there is now <laughs> I I read those books, I'll say that that fits Solita who uh, discovers uh at a critical point in her life that she is half Romulan and does not take it well. <laughs> and that's also typical of kind of that author's sense of humor, bringing a little bit of the, the darker edge. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I, I definitely have to... Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, speaking of Romulans, um, don't they still have a treaty... So technically, they ran into the middle of Romulan space. I'm like, how did a war not start? Well, they do touch on that a lot in the episode, because the, the whole thing is that the mission is secret, because mm. when the Romulans capture them, they want them to think that it's Kirk basically being a prick. Right, yeah. for the deniability, but... So at the end, then... you kind of just have to figure, like, Tal Shiar was like, well, we got outplayed this time, but we'll have our revenge. <laughs> And I you don't like, really see, in the whole rest of the franchise, you don't really see the Romulans being as keystone cops as they are in this episode, so you have to figure, like, maybe they learn something. Yeah, may maybe they learn, again, uh, yeah, next time we shoot backwards if we want to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we use our ears because, you know, Spock wasn't being very quiet when he was talking to Kirk, so I don't know how she couldn't have heard him. Stage whisper. <laughs> that is a, a recurring a recurring theme of people just not listening, I think. Something, Something that, I that I actually was, was somewhat glad, glad that, um, that in one of the Picard, Picard episodes they um, addressed address this thing of oh, right, okay. people talking people loudly talk in hallways, hallways thinking, thinking that nobody, that can, nobody hear them. can hear them. <laughs> <laughs> right, moving on then, we'll move on to the Paradise Syndrome. I'm going to start this section off straight away with a bit of one, uh, or one of the bits of trivia, actually. Because very beginning of the episode, we are sort of treated to uh, Kirk it's Kirk, Spock and McCoy isn't it on the planet mm -hmm. yes. yes yeah Kirk, Spock and McCoy on this uh, planet which isn't mentioned by name in the script uh, sorry in the episode at all according to the script it was rather unsubtly named Amerind <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. because America um, <laughs> because they didn't learn their lesson. They didn't learn their lesson from the episode with the fucking constitution in it. Um, but um, one of the first things that is mentioned by, I believe, McCoy is that the Native Americans depicted uh, in this episode are a cultural mix of what he describes as the Navajo, Delaware, and Mexicans. Now, obviously, I'm British. I don't know a huge amount about Native Americans. I don't know if it's a more known thing over there. That is one of the most bullshit fucking descriptions in the entire series. They live yeah, in teepees, yeah. which were used by the, which aren't used by any of those uh, tribes. Their clothing bears no resemblance to any actual Native American tribe. Their names bear no resemblance to Native naming styles. They're all they're referred to all as peaceful tribes, which none of those are. 
Well, the Navajo were not peaceful. The Mohicans never existed. They were fictional. So, just in that one sentence at the beginning of the episode, we've just got so much utter fucking bullshit. Well, no... I mean, none of that surprises me. Just none of it. And it's... You're you're potentially dipping into some very heavy topics here. Uh, This is a very dated episode in in many respects um i do think there's a desire to present it in good faith and you know they even they talk around it a little bit but they're very explicit like the preservers came and rescued these people you know from what genocide is what they were rescued from um but the, you know, the ignorance in the arrogance is just kind of like, this is how Hollywood told stories about native people at this juncture in time. Um, and you very, you know, noble, noble savage. Um, and uh, this idea that they would not have advanced in their technology or their beliefs after all these thousands of years, it, it just very provincial white bullshit it is, it is it is um not the best depiction i'll, I'll say that but, there um, was an attempt, attempt made yeah. there was, not that, particularly that, successful that describes most of the original series to be honest <laughs> i mean perhaps at the time it felt like it was successful but obviously us looking at it in 2021 is like yikes no <laughs> So, obviously in this episode we see these Native Americans and then there's this background plot of giant uh, asteroid gonna hit the planet, gonna wipe everyone out, we've gotta stop it because we gotta stop it. Um, they don't really give a reason other than because it'll kill people, which is a fair enough reason, but like the, the, the Federation doesn't have any particular ties to this planet so it did kind of confuse me as to why exactly it was the Enterprise going there I I suppose they were just just dropping dropping around around looking at stuff and touching things that they shouldn't be touching touching. Yeah, which just seems to be their MO for basically their entire mission just go around to different planets and touch things that they shouldn't touch and then cause a whole bunch of trouble while they're doing it see it it's interesting that you bring this up because the the idea of the the prime directive seemed to shift a little over the years and it shifted a little too far so in the next generation which takes place in universe you know almost 100 years later there's a serious philosophical debate they have over whether they have the right to rescue people from a natural disaster and i appreciate that in the 23rd century they're just like an asteroid is going to hit this planet and kill everybody. We're going to prevent that if we can. Yeah, I do definitely prefer that that take on. As long as we don't expose our technology to these people, yes. there's no reason yes. not to save them. And yeah. it, it has to do with this idea. Um, it, this comes from one of the uh, the J.J. Abrams movies, but I like it. Of the description of Starfleet is a peacekeeping and humanitarian armada. So like. Going out and preventing extinction events from happening is what they're out there for. Yeah. And I also appreciated that it's not trivial. Like, it's they burn out the ship's power. This is a difficult engineering 
challenge. And so I enjoyed those aspects of the framework of the episode. I like they, they said there's a, the whole Tahiti syndrome thing, yeah. <laughs> which I, I just decided to call it the uh, y'all can't y'all stop can't touching stop shit touching syndrome. syndrome. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> or the I'm never going to not see that as an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. reference, even though that came up 50 years later <laughs> syndrome. <laughs> Also, why why did why did Spock and McCoy just not notice that like Kirk dropped down in the middle of that obelisk? Like they were staring right at it, and they just didn't see him disappear. And I was like, "You guys don't keep very good eyes on your captain, do you?" <laughs> like he just randomly disappeared, and you're just like, "Eh." Meh, yeah, I mean, sure, you'd, you'd sure. think Spock would pay more attention to his husband, but um... <laughs> no, 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 no. He only no, no, pays he only attention, attention to his first husband. <laughs> oh, okay. The, the second um, one's second not one, that not concerning. That. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting facts about that, actually, with regards to that obelisk, uh, which I didn't um, know about until I, again, looked through this IMDb list. The symbols and the characters on the obelisk uh, were taken and used as the basis for the language spoken by the Predators in the Alien vs. Predator franchise. Oh. <laughs> they also look like the little like gate symbols on the Stargates. I said the exact same thing when I was uh, about it. I don't know whether there's a connection there as well. Possibly. Possibly. I wouldn't be surprised given that how, how much Stargate took from Star Trek in its early years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and particularly with the movie. Um, but yeah, apparently they just straight up copied that all for the for the language of the Predators in Alien vs. Predator. That's funny. Also, Kirk in one scene just like randomly picks up a tree branch and then just like throws it, which yeah. I was like, I don't know why you did that. He just like picked up a tree branch and then like threw it down. I'm like, if you're trying to be sneaky, I'm pretty sure throwing a random tree branch is definitely not the way to go. All right. Yeah, I mean, this this episode is a miss for, for lots of reasons, both mundane and thematic, but... I think it's not an accident that the most enduring legacy in the kind of fan corpus is this idea of the preservers, which were very often referenced in the kind of, you know, the the, the fan fiction material that kept sort of the heart beating until they started making Star Trek again. Um, they never... I don't think they explicitly come back in canon, but there is an alien race in TNG that everyone has pretty much decided, yep, those are the preservers. So um, I was just um, looking into that, actually, just, yeah, to, yeah. just to put in there. Apparently, one of the producers has said they're the same. Yeah. But and, there's never and, been anything in canon to confirm it. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and basically and, just this idea that they're finally saying, okay, let their, whoever wrote the episode is saying... It's ridiculous that they keep running into these different alternate Earths. Let's try and come up with a science fictional explanation so we can at least say we tried. <laughs> I appreciate them for trying, which yeah. also ended up being like they. It, this also ended up being like the similar reasons used in so many other sci-fi shows since. Well, that sure, Star- Stargate SG One definitely. Yeah. Say, that's what I was going to say. Is yeah. they they definitely tried, but Stargate did it better. <laughs> I think. Uh, I do agree with that. Um, But yeah, so obviously, so we have this this rock, and we have Kirk, amnesiac, for some reason, which doesn't seem to be fully explained. Did he just hit his head? (laughs) 
no, 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 no. He, he touched things he shouldn't have when he fell so down, and so then zapped his head. That's but what why happened. did the, why did the computer that was designed to blow up asteroids also wipe his memory? Because because, because, because Star the plot Trek. required <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, um, and he integrates with this tribe. Obviously, he uh, ends up with this woman Miramani, and ends up with her being pregnant. Which um, they which kill they her kill and her the baby. Apparently, yeah. so because because uh, in the original script they didn't die. In the yeah, original script, yeah. they were meant to survive. But, I mean, having Kirk's, babies running, <laughs> having Kirk's babies running around the universe would, would be complicated. But, yeah, um, I mean, they yeah, literally they just... Look what happened with the Doctor. <laughs> but, um, something that, that really, like... I mean, like we say, this episode is very hard to watch from a modern perspective anyway. But something that really pulled me out of it as I was watching it, and it's not... An, it's not their fault and it's not an issue with the episode at all but when Miramani is telling Kirk that she's pregnant there is a solid like minute or two where there is just a fly wandering around Kirk's forehead (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't not stare at it it's just I'm not sure if it's good acting or bad acting that you ignore it but either way it took some effort (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah I, I, I think I think I think there's less to say about this episode, and I think it's it's one that definitely is left in the past for good reason a lot of the time. But I think some of it does hold up. Except for the part where she apparently has so much internal injuries that from being thrown at with rocks that Kirk was also hit by, but he was fine, but she was not. Was not. And Kirk was shielding her, but she right. died and he didn't. Because, because <laughs> so, main character immunity. <laughs> so I'm like, you're telling me that in the 20, 23rd century, we couldn't figure out how to deal with internal injuries? Mm. from rocks <laughs> yeah like if if she was yeah her being con even today like our <laughs> our techniques for dealing with trauma like if she was conscious she would have been fine no head injury she's fine from what we saw you know nothing nothing was falling out of her so <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> she I, had I'm a shot. honestly just very concerned by the state of like the, the canonical state of starfleet medical is very concerning to me just throughout the entirety of TOS, I'm like, every time they do things, I'm like, what is happening in the medical department? (laughs) Is there any, like, is it all just like heads empty, no thoughts at all? (laughs) Nobody figured out what to do with anything? You know, like, we we can't save a woman who got hit by rocks from internal injuries, and we can't somehow fix, help fix a man who has injuries and can't communicate, but we give him a beep machine, but we can't give him a Morse code machine. You know, just a, just a few more extra few beeps, more extra beep. you know? You know? Yeah, just have a longer beep. That's, <laughs> that's all you need. I, just, I, I don't know what's happening. And, and yet Bone, Bones can just kind of figure out a whole bunch of stuff. So I'm like, oh, is it just Bones who has somewhat levels of brain cells and then just nobody else? <laughs> to be fair, looking at the rest of the cast of the original, yes. <laughs> yes, it is just Bones that has brain cells. <laughs> Although sometimes, oh, sometimes Bones, Bones loses that brain cell, cell, so I think mostly it's Ohoro who has it. I think maybe they share a brain cell between them. 
Which is mostly carried by Uhura. Which is mostly carried. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think, like I said, I think there's less to say about about the Paradise Syndrome. We've not not been talking about it for nearly as long as we were the other way. I mean, it's just it's a very it's a cliche story that is transplanted into Star Trek, and sometimes that works very well, like we just saw with the Enterprise incident, and sometimes it's a dang mess, like the Paradise Syndrome. Yeah. Sometimes it's just one OSHA safety hazard of, this is why you don't touch stuff. And maybe wear some protective gear somewhere. Also, what he, he just did like CPR on the kid in like a... Is that like a, the 60s version of how they do CPR? I assume? Well, CPR usually is not depicted accurately because accurate <laughs> CPR breaks your ribs. So it's always, it's always a pantomime. He did just snog the kid, though. <laughs> he was absolutely just snogging a child. You know, they don't do that anymore. Rescue breathing is, yeah. is no longer practiced. But that's recent. Like, they trained me on rescue breathing 15 years ago or yeah. so. But that was, like, the leg movement, too. I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> I, I, I may have been averting my eyes at that stage. <laughs> and there was also, like, this really confusing thing where uh they're like uh she she can't find a way to get like the, his clothes off on his uniform and then like right. the next scene he just has his uniform off and you're like wow i, I guess you figured it out <laughs> you know <laughs> well, motivated woman <laughs> also starfleet beds are not comfortable like they do not look comfortable at all they are not designed to give you rest. No wonder Spock is just not resting. Like, why would you rest on that bed? I think the chair is probably more comfortable at this point. <laughs> and then I love how Bones is like, "Oh, you, you need to rest, right?" And then he just leaves. I'm like, I'm like, well, you're yeah. not gonna lose. <laughs> I was like, you you couldn't like put somebody there to monitor him. Like maybe use a camera in the room or something. You're just like, oh no, just rest. Because I said so, and then I'm gonna leave this room because you're clearly going to just rest. I mean, there's definitely iterations of Bones that would have just assaulted him with a syringe. With a syringe. <laughs> yes. The version of Bones we see in Space Seed would have just knocked him out. <laughs> that is um, so true. But yes, yeah, so that's that's the Paradise Syndrome for for better or for worse. Uh, the next episode we need to talk about is "And the Children Shall Lead," which. I have opinions on, and I feel like they're not going to be controversial. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to be a little bit positive here. Um, this is one of those episodes that I had no desire to see, um, and it was on the docket, and I'm like, well, I'll check it out, um, you know. And I watched it, and it's like, it's it's okay. It's a little horror story in space. Like, it's got some some imagery that is solid um the the kit the child performers are good they are they are very much on point um you know everyone acts like an idiot but that's just kind of season three and the stunt you know the stunt casting for the villain is awful um but yeah he he, he was a lawyer he was a famous lawyer but on the other hand, he's not around that much. That, much. that is that is the sort of saving <laughs> grace of the episode, I think, is he's awful, but there's not a lot of him. 
Yeah, so it was, I did not have as miserable an experience as I expected to have uh, when I when I watched this for the podcast. You know, it's kind of a decent little horror show in space with some decent guest acting. Yeah, I quite I, yeah. enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed it. It's definitely not the worst. Although OSHA-wise, OSHA it's probably not okay. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, letting children run around like sensitive equipment probably isn't a good start. You should have a warning light go off before you beam someone into space. Like, that wasn't even the children's fault. They weren't there. Yeah. I, I have... There, there, there will be many OSHA concerns at the end of this. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that towards the end of this segment. Um, but, yeah. Something that I found quite interesting, because... There's, I mean, by merit of it being a very child actor heavy episode, it's gonna draw comparisons to the other obvious child actor heavy, that child actor heavy episode, which is Miri. What I found quite interesting about this, because I, I mean, personally believe Miri is far better as an episode. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I think Miri was interesting. I, I've never seen it, so. I think Mary was a very interesting episode with, um, I don't know, I feel like that one had a bit more of an emotional kick to it. Yeah. Um, and I think this one was more toned down, but maybe a slightly more horror base than emotional story. story. No, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I, th- I think that's a fair analysis. Um, what what I found quite interesting though is because I apparently am not the only person who immediately thought that's like Mary. The direct, uh, well, sorry, one of the producers, uh, Fre- Freiberger, referred to it um, when speaking to Len Nimoy as what Mary should have been. Um, Nimoy was apparently not impressed and responded that Mary was a beautiful, well acted story. Um, and that Freiberg saying that was the equivalent to, and I quote, calling Mary a piece of trash. <laughs> so um <laughs> Nimoy Nimoy not a fan of this episode apparently. Nor interestingly is Walter Koenig. This is his apparently his least favorite episode. Which I found quite interesting. Hmm. I wonder if that's that's some of that tension seeping through that like everybody kind of recognized that they were doing something really special in season 1 and then it with everyone was getting run down with it with season 3 fighting with the new producer. It seems like an expression of that, um, as well as a difference in uh, critical opinion. Opinion. Yeah. I mean, when he gave this interview where he said this was his least favorite episode, his reason that he gave was that he considered uh, uh, Melvin Belly, the actor slash lawyer, um, to have, and I quote again, robbed professional actors of the role, which was why he was so vehemently against this episode. Eh. Understandable. I mean, I, I can kind of see his point. That, like, a professional actor could have had that gig. I don't think it's necessary. Like, it happens all the time. You get famous people in to boost ratings, and obviously it didn't work in this case, but. I get it from an actor's perspective. Yeah. But also, it's just, um, you know, I, I don't think that's the, that's the reason that this episode is bad, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm just looking through my list of trivia now because there's not a huge amount to say about this one other than sort of looking through the trivia I don't think um, 
something that I did pick up on while watching it, and obviously I wasn't aware that it was the only case, because I've not seen the whole set of Series 3 yet, but again, the IMDb um, fact sheet confirmed this. This is the only appearance of the uh, United Federation of Planets flag in the original series. Because obviously Kirk plants that flag yeah, at the graves yeah, of the that, parents. That, 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 that makes sense because it wasn't in the, the ones, ones before. before it. It. I don't think I, I don't remember, think I remember seeing, it seeing it in the ones after. The ones after. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've definitely not seen it up to that point. So, I mentioned this on Twitter, but at the time, Gene Roddenberry was moving into... Um, he started this company, Lincoln Enterprises... Uh, and where he was basically, yeah, selling merch, like whatever he could get the rights for to appear on Star Trek, he would then say, I own this, I'm selling it. I know that's the case with the edict pin in the next episode. Um, I don't know if that's the case with the UFP flag that he kind of planted it there, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, they went with a very different design for the movies that then carried forward into TNG and so forth, which is better. But, you know, it's, you know, interesting bit of trivia. It's an interesting bit of world building because, like, no one really comments on it. But, like, oh, you know, the United Federation of Planets, of course, it was a Federation outpost. That's how we commemorate them. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was definitely nice. Flag. Yeah, it, it's a nice, nice little thing. Also, Kirk seems to increasingly have this habit of, like, if somebody doesn't listen to him, he'll just say the same things, but slightly louder every single time. <laughs> and well, you're he's just... an American, obviously. <laughs> but, but you're just like, buddy, that, that doesn't work the second time. That's not, like, you saying this slightly louder does not make them understand this any better. Any better. No. It's like the bloody defini definition of insanity speech from um, <laughs> He Far just, Cry like, 3. grabs people and just, like, shakes them and says things louder. I'm like, what? Use brain. <laughs> they're, they're like, oh, no, 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 you, you have to obey me. You can't disobey my orders. And Chekhov's just like, I gotta disobey your orders. And you're just sitting going, like, you're having the same conversations that you had, like, five seconds ago, but just slightly louder. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the, I, I think I think he genuinely like four or five times during that conversation <laughs> with Chekhov says something along the lines of the order is fake. It's like he didn't listen to you the first five times you said that. He's not gonna listen to. And meanwhile, this child in the background is just waving his hand, and I'm like, could could Spock not just do like a sly nerve pinch somehow? <laughs> Maybe sneak up on the kid from behind or something. It does. It, it feels a lot like this episode is, like, very much story over common sense. Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, I like the story, but also at the same time, you're just, whew, everybody's brain cells went out the window at some point. <laughs> to, to maybe close on a positive note, um, I did think the McCoy's treatment of trauma. For the kids and how the the denouement kind of kind of played out was pretty progressive for the time. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly better than how they handled it in uh, Doomsday Machine. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that was something I touched on with the live tweet thread as well. Is um, on a similar note, when Kirk is affected by the children and he has his what is effectively an anxiety attack, 
I feel like for something that was released in the late 60s, that was relatively well portrayed. Yeah. Like, yeah. it wasn't treated as him just being... Yeah. And I, and I like that he came back afterwards saying, like, you know, the beast has left, you know, or something to that effect. Hmm. Which is like, you know, in, in that in that time period, it's, it's a pretty good message <laughs> and a pretty good way of handling it. The OSHA-related things that I find were um, they beamed down and didn't realize there were dead people, which I thought, you know, you should have scanned around your area before you beamed down first. You know, what if you beamed yourself right into an ocean and there were sharks? So that didn't make any sense. <laughs> and then they didn't know why everybody died, so they touched everybody and then smelled a whole bunch of stuff, which also didn't make any sense. Oof. And then they were like, oh, there's an unknown attacker on this planet that's supposedly uninhabited, but they're just standing around chatting with each other, you know, nonchalantly. And then Spock and Kirk goes into a cave where supposedly, you know, this anxiety-inducing thing comes from, and then don't tell anybody, which is like, what if you two just got locked in a cave and nobody found you, you know? Mr. Scott's Enterprise. <laughs> And then children comes onto the bridge without any warning. They, they just like, they just waltz into the bridge. Once again, this like open bridge thing where there's like, do we not stop people from coming onto the bridge when they're not supposed to? Um, you, have, you have to wonder if like Picard <laughs> saw this episode. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was why he hated children. <laughs> <laughs> but um it, it was funny also uh the 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 crew gets taken over by these kids right while this guard is just standing there watching this kid waving his arms around and i'm like D does that not connect in your head as a security guard that maybe this child is up to something <laughs> but no he just stands there and stares at this child while he's doing it um, also, the whole beaming people right into space, which I figured, if you're orbiting a, a planet, shouldn't you first make sure you're not sending people into space when you're sending them into, you know, transporting them into any location? Well, it was sort of like the, the cheap red shirt syndrome, which wasn't really even a thing in season one. But here it's like you, 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 two people are dead and you just kind of look annoyed. Yeah. And then, they're they're and treating then, them like extras rather than like fictional soldiers. Right. And then the glowing guy shows up, Gorgon, and they just kind of all sit, stand there and watch and don't really do anything and just let the guy talk. And then... But I, I don't even know, how did they figure out his name? They read the script. They <laughs> just magically knew his name, which is also really weird. Also, what happened to those two dead sol uh, crew members that are floating around in space? Are they going to go back to pick them up somewhere? And that security department that was uh, on the planet <laughs> that they never went back to go get. <laughs> so, yeah. This entire episode is like an ocean nightmare. <laughs> so low, sc low score on the OSHA, low score on the logic, low score on the brain cells. I think is the conclusion for that one. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, probably in the top half of, of today's selection. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly so. Surprisingly so. Maybe, maybe there's a correlation. Low OSHA, <laughs> better story. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, sorry. Move, moving on before I have a complete breakdown over that episode. Is there in truth no beauty? So, sorry, I need a moment to... I think I'm I, still I... laughing at the children shall leave. Go on, go on, go ahead. Well, I, I, I think I kind of broke down this one on, on Twitter when you were watching it. Like, I think it's... I, I like... I like that the alien is weird. Like, I don't know how well the uh, the the logic would really hold up, but I like that it's weird and it's not humanoid and it's got this strange way of expressing itself. I like all that. Um, Diana Muldaur is fantastic as the guest star, um, especially when you realize that she actually is playing it blind. Like, you watch her navigate through the room, but she doesn't make eye contact, and her eye line is not quite where you want it to be. And, like, that's, you know, and and she holds her own. Every scene she has with, you know, people like Kirk and Spock, you know, she most people in the show will fold, like, a cheap suit because the main characters are always right. And whether it's in the, the script or whether it's a choice they made on set, but she always stands up for herself and is and is right what's bad about oh sorry uh what's bad about the show is as usual it's kind of an idiot plot where the main characters are concerned and it's just really bad 60s pop psychology drama yeah absolutely <laughs> i think this is this is going to be an interesting one for the osha compliancy i think because um Madman commandeers the ship and nobody notices until he's flown them out of the universe. Uh, there, there is much commentary about that. <laughs> well, I have a lot of OSHA opinions about this episode. I mean, we, we can we can do the OSHA segment. Go for the OSHA segment. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, it, it was it was this really funny thing where um, at the very beginning they mention a lot about how it's important that Spock has to wear these goggles, right? This visor, and then. He puts it on, and they arrive, and apparently he just, like, takes it right off. So I'm like, why did you pick put it on in the first place? So, I'll, just, I'll just butt in quickly there, because that was something that I picked up on in the episode. The best theory that I could come up with for that is that because Kolos is in his box, the visor isn't necessary, but when Kolos was beaming in, there was a risk that he would beam in a millisecond before the box or something like that. <laughs> but if he was in the box... <laughs> but I was like, if he was in the box, then you wouldn't technically need it. <laughs> no, I, no, I, yeah, I actually thought of the same thing um, when when you were speaking uh, that you were saying. But then what it doesn't explain is why Kirk is just hanging out in the room while they're beaming, while they're beaming out, out um, down, at the end of the yeah. episode with no goggles. <laughs> That does slightly ruin my. Like they, my they could, they couldn't have made, they, they couldn't have made a third goggle prop for Shatner. <laughs> but e even weirder that Kirk is hanging out there not wearing goggles while Spock is still wearing them. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah what I mean. that's what I mean. Like if they just not had any of them wearing goggles, then fine. But <laughs> Spock and Miranda still are wearing them. So maybe Kirk has already just you know gone slightly for cocoa puffs. So it, he just He's didn't immune. Need it's like Fry in Futurama. <laughs> and then also, uh, th this isn't so much as a, a Starfleet OSHA problem. That was just something I noticed that 
when Miranda noticed that someone was like thinking of murder and killing and she just like says it to the guy Larry and I was like why did you like tell him <laughs> and then and then when uh when they figure out that Larry's the one who was like trying to kill the ambassador and they just announce it over the ship's intercom <laughs> <laughs> and I just sat there I was like why why did you announce this very important sensitive information over the entire ship's intercom while the guy is on the ship and can clearly hear it yeah it was not the wisest choice do we not have like you know specific channels where we could like speak to like various departments heads and then have them spread the message because like literally the guy was out there doing stuff while this announcement was going over and i was like yeah, yeah i think i think scotty could have used like a silent five second heads up <laughs> <laughs> not standing right next to the murderer while you're telling him hey there's a murderer on the loose, on the loose. <laughs> i do th- i do think scotty does shine in this episode though i think it is very much mm-hmm. a strong one for him also, security, once again, completely, absolutely useless in a fight. Just, I don't know what Starfleet is training their medical people and their security people to do, but clearly it's not their jobs. <laughs> oh, no, they're training them on how to play poker, I reckon. <laughs> or just stand there and stare at people. Risk is our business. Yeah, it... it it's so risky, we're just going to stand here and stare at people. That is our job. <laughs> and then they, like, they also then just, like, at some point, like, randomly in that, in the scene where, like, they just stop um, the mind link because Miranda said so, which was really weird. <laughs> it was really weird. Yeah, the whole, the whole thing was, her... Like her story was supposed to be her getting over like jealousy, but it just didn't come through at all. It was like she's jealous of Spock, is she? Yeah, we said so. Yeah, but show it. Yeah, that's the the bad pop psychology business. Um, in this this kind of like, the, it's this tug of war again. Whereas we're supposed to expect, you know, if we if we treat Miranda as a woman instead of a scientist, which is what they literally say in the episode, then we're shown, okay, that's not respecting her, that's not respecting her choices, that's wrong. But then in the end, the breakthrough comes from Kirk throwing Miranda around a room and saying that you've got to get over your, like, schoolgirl jealousy of Spock for getting to touch and see the ambassador in a different way than you and it mm, it just doesn't it doesn't cohere because of that that tension between the like the feminism and the sexism i'll just say it no no you're absolutely right i think that's to the detriment of the later scene as well where kirk is trying to get through to her because he very strongly implies and the episode seems to suggest that he's right that she just wants spock dead Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's not, like, she's... Okay, you told us she's jealous of him, but you've not really given any indication that she is a malicious person to that extent. And then she's like, no, she just, she wants Spock dead. Well, what I, I did appreciate this a little bit after, because um, I read a review of the episode, and it says, yeah, it kind of sets this up, but then, you know, let's 
concede, though, that Kirk walks out of that room and then immediately says, I've done a wrong thing. Like, I said this and I, and I, and I didn't mean it and I was just getting emotional. And then Miranda never says, like, oh, you're right, I wanted Spock dead. So I think that, and I, I'm completely making this up just because I'm so impressed with her performance, but I, I think Diana Moldauer might have found a way to kind of walk that tightrope and bring in and bring in the subtlety like was she jealous enough to half-ass curing spock or not and it winds up being kind of this private conflict within her rather than being an external conflict between her and kirk yeah definitely i, th I think that there was an attempt made at the very least and the episode struggles with where it's going but i think it's it's largely held up by just how brilliant an actress Diana Muldaur is. Yeah, I yeah, think which she is really carried the episode. <laughs> yeah, which is a shame because Pulaski is so badly written later. But that's a whole other series. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I actually quite enjoy Pulaski. Pulaski. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, I think we'll, we'll try and sort of move on a bit quicker at the moment because we're nearing the end of this now we've got one more episode to do just the last thing I do want to mention again with regards to my trivia um, before we move on to the final episode uh, this is one of only two episodes where Scotty is seen in his dress uniform and I will die for that man when he's wearing a kilt <laughs> he wears the kilt in the um, dinner scene with Miranda it's very stylish, yeah. stylish. God, the one where everyone's drooling over her yes the one which, the one where you'll notice Spock has very few lines because Nimoy refused to say any of them because he was pissed off at Rodenbury for the Eidic Medallion. Oh god. <laughs> I, I was reading up about this because, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the Eidic Medallion was basically designed so Rodenbury could then sell it to fans. And um, there was supposed to be a long speech by Nimoy as Spock <laughs> in this scene, sort of going on about how brilliant Eidic as a thing is. And Nimoy went, Fuck you! I'm not doing that. You're just doing this to sell your fucking merch. <laughs> so you'll notice all. You'll notice he's the only character at that table that doesn't actually explain what Isaac is. Mm -hmm. That's so. That's so interesting. I I know the fine details of that conflict. Silent protest. Mm -hmm. I think Nimoy, Nimoy's um, role throughout his appearances on Star Trek was telling the producers to fuck off. <laughs> Yeah, well, he, he had that. It's right I, I mentioned before he he had the power and he used the power to protect other people, so to protect the audience who cared about Spock and to protect his fellow cast members. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, so we'll move on now because we do need to be getting on. Uh, so Spectre of the Gun. I'm just going to let you guys take it away on this one. Well. Um, I don't believe I'd ever seen the episode all the way through. Um, I was familiar with the premise, um, and in relatively recent years, uh, more or less by accident, I stumbled on the movie Tombstone, uh, from the 90s with Kurt Russell, That's and I adore that movie, uh, it turns Great out, movie. and so I wound up doing kind of a deep dive into, into the history um, and, you know, both sort of what, what really happened, which Tombstone is actually mostly based on, and then kind of the pop mythology that was more prevalent when this episode was being made. Um, so a couple interesting things of note um, that 
I think elevate this beyond just being a pre-holodeck episode with cowboys. You know, I think there is more to it than that. Uh, first of all, it was at least a little bit provocative at the time to cast the Earps and Doc Holliday as the villains. Uh, so people always go back and forth on this, and it, probably this isn't as much a thing in the UK. Okay. Um, no, I, I didn't know much about the OK Corral going into this, I'll be honest. It, yeah, in the US, it's, it's definitely sort of entered that, that pop mythology, not because it was a particularly momentous event historically, but just because it's a good story, honestly. Um, and like, like right now, there's a, a Canadian show, of course, that plays in the US called Winona Earp, about like a fictional descendant of Wyatt Earp in a fantasy setting. So great you show. always, yeah, yeah, it is a great show. So you always get a little, a little bit of that 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 presence there of that of that of that myth um and it goes back and forth um it really does but at the time of this episode and also by happenstance in the 90s when tombstone was made the erps were considered more sympathetic by most people um so partly it's just plot mechanics because the you know the crew are the ones who are supposed to die so they're cast as the losing party in the gunfight but also, it was a little bit provocative, at least at the time, to have the Earps as these kind of grim executioners without any of their positive uh, qualities to the fore. Um, I also appreciated that, you know, it was probably scripted to be, you know, just like filmed on the back lot, right? <laughs> just filmed like a Western, like TNG would later do. Instead, they did this surreal landscape, and I didn't know what I'd think of it, and I wound up really digging it. Like, I think that's a case where they, they took the tiny budget they had and they spun something really cool out of it. And so it never quite feels like it's just a cosplaying Western. It always feels like a science, like a fiction, science story. fiction story. So I, I did look into that a little bit because that was something I picked up on as well. And because um, my immediate thought when watching this episode is this is towards the end of the original series. They've probably stolen costumes from something else Paramount was making. <laughs> Because well, yeah. that's what happens from most... Well, and you know, this is one of my favorite pieces of trivia, actually. DeForest Kelly, when he shot this episode, had already played in separate feature films Ike Clanton and Morgan Earp. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and interestingly as well, which is what I was going to touch on as well, he played Earp in an OK Corral film made by Paramount, which <laughs> yeah. they then made a what they referred to as a sequel but was basically a retelling mm. in 1967 called Hour of the Gun <laughs> which this was then based on Spectre of the and Gun, they wanted yeah. they wanted to cast DeForest Kelly in that but couldn't because he was too busy on Star Trek <laughs> so it all well, he, comes he, was, he was a western actor before he was McCoy yeah no absolutely um, but what you were saying about the sets as well I think from what I understood from reading about it it was a case of like you said they didn't have the budget and these were bits of furniture and set that were left over from Hour of the Gun. So it was very much a case of, we'll take this, we'll make something with it, but we don't have a full set, so we'll do this whole dream sequence. Well, not dream sequence, but like weird reality type thing with the alien sky type thing. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. They, they took something that wasn't high budget, that they didn't have the means to do what they wanted to do with it, and worked within their means to make something that, if anything, was more powerful as an end result, I think. 
I also just really like, I, I actually like the theme of this story, this idea of mm. like um, humanity in a way having to like prove itself not be this violent thing where, you know, it, it's almost like, I, I kind of feel like it's a bit of a precursor to like the whole Q trial thing at Encounter at Fart Point mm. that comes later where you know humanity kind of has to prove itself to other species who think well in your you know planet's history you're you're just violence everywhere you know violence hurting other people violence is your first instinct and then the sole concept of uh, humanity now has evolved beyond using violence as a first instinct although sometimes i think scotty goes mm -hmm. for violence first <laughs> but I but Trouble i with tribbles is, is a prime <laughs> example of that but but i do like this idea of like constantly sort of reiterating the fact that humanity has grown out of this shadow of violence and oppression and darkness to being an enlightened society where we don't have to always resort to you know using violence as a means to solve a problem but you know kind of using our brains and figure things out other ways to deal with the problem which is you know what they did in this case and it's what kind of works and earns them a new friend yeah i think that's i think that's that's very perceptive the the tng um, connecting it with TNG and the idea of testing. Um, and I, I want to connect it to, this is recognizably a restaging of Arena with the Gorn. So one of Gene Kuhn's first scripts versus Gene Kuhn's last script. But I think in some ways this is better uh, because one, it's just weirder and more abstract. Um, but two... In Arena, you know, for the whole first act, the Enterprise crew is just constantly shooting their guns off, metaphorically and literally. Whereas, you know, two years later, Inspector of the Gun, they refuse to use violence even in the fantasy setting. They, they don't use their guns. They're, like, briefly tempted, but in fact, none of the Enterprise crew ever draw, not even Chekhov. And so... It's powerful that even in like the time span of the show, maybe some progress has been made. And you know, and Kirk has this sort of vague, you know, knowledge and admiration of this era, but he doesn't fall into the trap. He's like, as you say, he knows we're better than this now. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. I think it's something to touch on because we didn't mention it when talking about series one and two very much, but. The original series does have not necessarily a problem, but a a habit of being very self-contained. Obviously, it it comes from the need to re-air episodes whenever you can chuck them on te on the telly. Mm -hmm. That everything is very self-contained, and with the exception of the menagerie, obviously being a two-parter, there's very little reference to previous episodes or sort of consequences carrying over. So I think to have that sort of character development where you've gone, they've gone from very quick to aggress to being more understanding and more pacifist is is relatively big for the original series because there's so little of that. Um, Pikachu, any um, 
Any OSHA violations in this one? Well, the first one would be... <laughs> the first one would be as soon as they were warned to, like, stay away, didn't listen. So, mm. you know. They have to transgress. Yeah, exactly. They, they have to do something wrong to do something right, which seems to be the habit around here. Uh, Chekhov is just really into kissing random girls, which, you know, fine, good for him, but also at the same time, just, just, he makes me concerned, you know? I'm very concerned. I, I feel like a concerned parent. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think there was, a, there was a line that I um, tweeted about while watching this episode that he said that was, uh, I'll see if we're always supposed to maintain good relations with the natives. And I'm like, yeah, but that means like being friendly with them, not shoving your tongue down their throats. Chekhov just seemed the most confused out of all of them. He he seemed confused, but he seemed to be having fun mm. at the same time. Like, <laughs> like he 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 was the most confused yet having the most fun, which you know, bless him. That's great. I'm glad he's having fun, but also at the same time, it's like that child that would just like casually walk off a cliffside or something, and you're just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then once again, Kirk has that same tendency of just like, if I say it nicely and repeatedly, people will believe me. And I'm like, I don't know how many minutes you can repeat the same dialogue before you realize these people don't get it. Mm. <laughs> Which is like, let's just play your parts, you know? <laughs> we're, we're all smart people. Let's play the part we're here to play just a little bit to get our way. Um, Chekhov, again, no common sense, just walks towards the gun. I, very concerning, again, I don't know what he's doing. Um, a little bit it's smarts from them trying to gather supplies, but like a point less for McCoy trying to like not so inconspicuously take a whole bunch of drugs. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of wanders in. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll have that and I'll have that. I, 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 I constantly feel like I worry about these grown people who don't seem to have very much a concept of like stranger danger. And, and just general sort of common sense that I feel like, you know, general 21st century children have. <laughs> but somehow the, you know, the best of the best of Starfleet tends to not often exercise. Hey, we've only got 50 minutes to put ourselves in mortal peril. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you know, Chekhov gets shot because, you know, there's no brain cells there. Uh, and that, that brings me on to because that confused me a lot. Because the whole point of this exercise was that they're effectively... I know it was a test, but if they hadn't passed the test, the implication I got from it was that they would still have died. I agree. Yeah. So why is Chekhov just suddenly back on the bridge of the Enterprise at the end of the episode? I, I think they, their, their explanation was that he never really thought any of it was real except for the girl. So he didn't really <laughs> affect him. I mean, I, I think there's he was just, like, definitely out of the program while the rest of them were still stuck in the simulation. Basically, <laughs> he was waiting for them to come out. So I, the the metaphysics of it all were kind of interesting to me because um, I assumed, as you're supposed to assume, that after encountering the buoy, they flew onto the planet, they beamed down to the planet, and then they were put in a simulation on the planet. 
You know, in fact, if it was one of the more modern shows, I would have said, oh, they're in an alien holodeck. But then it seems to be revealed that it just happened in the minds of those particular people on the bridge. So, because they're back in the ship and they're back with the buoy, and then they're invited to actually come to Melcott. So, in other words... Nothing in the episode physically happened after the first buoy encounter. Oh, okay. I, I hadn't picked up on that at all, but that does make a lot of sense thinking yeah, about it. Yeah. So would the Melkotians have killed them all? Would they have killed everyone on the ship if they failed the test? Or would they have just the yeah, or, or would they have just like fucked with everyone's minds and made them forget? It's, it's, it's left out in, in the open, I think, which might be for the best. Also, you know, quite a few mind melds in the last mm. few episodes. It just Spock was just mind melding left and right. <laughs> Which is weird coming from, like, at the very beginning of the series, it was very much treated as very taboo for a Vulcan to mind meld in front of anyone who wasn't a human. Oh, sorry, who wasn't a Vulcan. Yeah. And now it's just, he just does it left, right, and center. <laughs> yeah, it just. The interpretation clearly sort of changed with the needs of the. You know, because after he does it once, mind melding is now that thing Spock does. So the lore, the lore kind of bends to accommodate. No, that that that's a fair point. Yeah. There was also one very interesting moment where, like, um, after Chekhov is supposedly dead, and McCoy just tells Jim, like, you you know, he's dead. You got to move on. But then he somehow like he. Yeah, and then he berates Spock for not grieving enough, which was like. Yeah, but five seconds ago you were just telling Kirk to like get over it. <laughs> yeah, it, that's in that's in character for McCoy. <laughs> he's a, he's a little he's a little flighty. <laughs> he's very inconsistent, I think. Well, I had a I had a couple of historical notes. Um, so I you know I think we did discuss on on Twitter just a short while ago actually you know that that. They, the the Clanton gang did have a law enforcement uh, officer on their side in the feud, Sheriff Behan. So they did they did use a real historical character for that. You know the people in the the uh, tavern, I almost said pub, the tavern uh, were just generic stock characters, of course. Um, it was interesting how they used the history when it suited them, like Chekhov being a historical character that did not die then dying is what tells them that, like, this can play out differently. Um, but then, on the other hand, they just, like, yeah, so, so they said Morgan Earp is the most deadly of all of them. And I'm sitting here thinking, Morgan Earp killed between zero and one person in his life. I say, that was something that came up when I was doing my research. He was very frequently referred to as the most level-headed of the Earps. Yeah, and so, just, and... You know, and then Wyatt being the Marshal instead of Virgil, but that was probably a, a common misconception and not specific to the episode. So it's just interesting, you know, what they picked up and what they used. Doc Holliday was called Doc because he was a trained dentist. At the time, he was not a practicing dentist. He was trying to drink himself to death before the tuberculosis could get him. Oh, right. That's actually... Sorry, just quickly on that note, something that came up when I was doing my research again that in the original script of this episode there was a scene that was I don't believe ever filmed, not even cut just not filmed, of McCoy when he's trying to convince uh, Doc Holliday to give him the uh, drugs, whatever it is that he's using mm. to make this grenade uh, 
tries to help him cure his tubu- uh, cure his tubu- cure his Looking TB. Yeah, <laughs> cure his TB. Um, that sounds so familiar, so familiar that, that I bet I read it in one of the James Blish summary compilations. I think it is, yeah. I've not read that one yet. I've got it on my shelf waiting for me to read it, but I do think it was in, in his uh, novelization, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds so familiar, but obviously we didn't just see it. I was surprised we didn't get any ghosts. You know, in <laughs> in this episode, given the um, k- kind of uh, ghostly legend stuff that comes around the whole tombstone things. Yeah, there is kind of a ghost story vibe. <laughs> I yeah, I, I get that. They 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 treat it all as very physical, but then it, the background constantly yeah. reminds you that like this isn't real. This isn't real. And the way that all the the people are are like stock characters. That was the other thing that made me think this is really does feel like a precursor of a, a Dex Generation episode set in the holodeck. The way that those holodeck characters act when they're not fully sentient or sapient um, is very much how these Melkotian simulacra acted. Yeah. So it's interesting to this, this, uh, that this idea recurs in Star Trek of getting dropped into a melodrama you know, against your will, and then having to sort of, like, adventure game your way, out, way of it. out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's definitely a very interesting, and it sort of ties back into what I was saying while talking about Series 2, about how I'm always drawn to episodes like the Mirror Universe stuff, where it's very much sort of them, not obviously in this case not fighting against alternate versions of themselves, but having to sort of work their way through a situation, and like like you said, like a simulation, like a test. It sort of ties into the same sort of hit for me that makes me enjoy an episode, which I think is why this is not necessarily a favourite of mine, but definitely up there as an in- one of the best of Series 3 so far, at the very least. And here's an interesting trivia point in that regard. This was the first produced of Season 3, and the Enterprise incident was the second, so maybe it just hadn't had time to crash, crash yet. yet. Yeah. That's very interesting as well, going back to what you said about with Spock's brain being what they considered to be putting their best foot forward, because <laughs> I would have been hooked <laughs> if this was the first episode of the series. <laughs> so that's that's very interesting. I think it's funny that um, that I think the the crew of the Enterprise functions a lot better in a story where they're kind of like dealing with a sort of test or a puzzle sort of situation, which is really ironic given that, you know, they're basically a bunch of like space nerds, you know? <laughs> so so what, they're, what they're saying is just, you know, they're really good at academia <laughs> taking tests. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I think that's pretty much all there is to say about, um, about Spectre of the Gun, actually, to be fair. Um, yeah. Love the episode. Sorry? Love the episode. episode. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that actually brings me on to what I was going to ask, which I think um, how we're going to end these episodes is sort of looking, look at what each of us would say was the best episode of the batch and what you would say is possibly the worst or your least favourite of the batch. So if we go around and start with Patrick as you're the guest, what what was your favourite episode out of those six? Uh, Spectre. Uh, Spectre. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with that one. Spectre is, Spectre is mine as well. Pikachu? Hmm. 
<laughs> a part of me is tempted to say Spock's brain just because. <laughs> but I will refrain from doing that and say that I think I quite like the Enterprise incident. That's yeah, that's that's probably my second pick, I would say. Mm. Yeah, I like the Romulan um, dynamic. What about, dynamic. What about least favorite episodes? What would you say for that? Mm. That's a good question. There's. Oh, sorry, go on, Patrick. I was gonna say it, it, it's neck and neck, but um, I think it by virtue of being more offensive and less interesting i have got to give it to paradise syndrome over spock's brain but it's close <laughs> yeah i think i have the same thing that's interesting i would have gone with um with and the children shall lead for that one I, it's it's not an offensively bad episode but i just don't care for it at all there's just it doesn't do anything for me i don't think um well yeah, that, that was the first episode of the Never Seen Trek podcast. However long it ends up being, we've been recording for three and a half hours. So, this could be a long one. But, um, well, I've had, had a wonderful time, time throughout, throughout, so thank you. So thank you. Well, Feel no, I was just about to say thank you for joining us as well. Hey, uh, have, me back, have me back any time. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> i be honest with you, with your extensive knowledge of the franchise, you may well be who we come to whenever we don't have a guest. Excellent. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Um, do you want to plug your Twitter again, or any, any other projects if you have Oh, any... sure. Um, well, uh, all my various stuff you can basically access through my Twitter account. It's at uh, Angiris42. Uh, and uh, you can find links to my blog and whatever else I'm up to there great well thank you for that and everyone definitely go check that out because it's probably more interesting than listening to me rant for an hour um, or three oh, oh. <laughs> modest um, I've been Sam or never seen Trek this is, Captain, wanna... this is Captain, Pikachu. Captain Pikachu and that was the never seen Trek podcast episode one thank you for joining us <laughs>